Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arse Blog Arsecast right here on arseblog.com. How are you? I hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. Yes, it's a day early, but look, we've all just endured an interlull. There hasn't been much going on. We're all just sitting around, hoping, waiting, praying that all the players who went away with their countries have come back without any injuries, without any issues, without any problems, and that we can have a relatively clean bill of health going forward, going into some very important games. December, as we know, is always busy, but it's important too. Those games around the festive period, the table can change quite a bit. So we're hoping on Gabriel Jesus that he's okay. He's going to come back and we'll talk about him uh, in a little while because this is a two-parter. We've got two guests for you today. A bit later on, I'll be chatting to Tim Stillman about Gabriel Jesus, but also about Arsenal women and about a big piece that he did this week on Arsblog News about the lack of diversity within the Arsenal women first team squad. Why has that happened? What's going on there? And what is being put in place to address that? Tim wrote about it during the week, but we'll talk about that and Gabriel Jesus as well. Another big thing in the news this week week, of course, was the Premier League clubs taking a vote on loans between associated clubs. As we know, that was defeated 12 to 8. We're going to get into the nuts and bolts of that and discuss the multi-club ownership model in general, some of the wider implications of that, sporting and otherwise. And who better to discuss that with than Philippe O'Claire? Hello, Philippe. Hello, Andrew. Hello, everyone. This week saw the Premier League clubs take a vote on whether or not there should be a ban on loans between associated clubs. That vote was defeated 12 to 8. We can get into the nuts and bolts of who did what and all the rest of it uh, in a couple of moments' time. Mm -hmm. I know that there are rules within the Premier League that anything new has to be ratified by the member clubs and all the rest of it. But given the state of play... Is it not slightly ridiculous that the Premier League has essentially asked some of these turkeys to vote for Christmas, and these aren't turkeys, they're too smart to do that? (laughs) Yes, Um, it is an interesting um, consequence of the uh, two-thirds majority rule. Uh, On one hand, the two-thirds majority rule has enabled to avoid quite a few bad things in the past, and certainly has uh, slightly lessened the power of of the big six or big seven within the Premier League, because obviously they need to um, they need the Burnleys and the um, I was going to say the Southamptons, but they needed the Burnleys mm. and the Southamptons in the past. Um, a bit like uh, in FIFA, you know, Montserrat has got uh, the same weight as Germany when it comes to a vote, when there is a vote, because these days there's no longer votes at FIFA, it doesn't matter. 
Um, but yes, it is, it is an oddity. Um, it's very often when looked at it, when you look at it from the outside, from other countries, people often ask me if that is right, if that is correct, and it seems very strange to them. But that's the way the Premier League was constituted. And again, at times, it has played in favour of what we would like to call football. And at others, like certainly on this occasion, uh, it's been quite shocking um, oh. to see that... Um, well, eight clubs which were solely motivated by self-interest uh, have been able to uh, defeat a motion that would have put some semblance of order in the House of Football until um, a proper resolution was passed at the end of the season. Because that's the other thing. This motion was purely, um, it, it was it had a time limit. It was short it was term. Sensitive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was for, for a short term. It, it, the idea was not to... Uh, prohibit, uh, prevent club from using sister clubs to um, to do various deals. It was just to mark a pause and uh, until a proper uh, resolution had been passed, uh, perhaps at the end of the season, and which would have, um, which would be uh, then applied for um, until such time when it was changed again. Sure. Uh, so even that was, was too much for those guys, which means that they were looking at what's going to happen in January, basically. And, uh, and they didn't want to set a precedent yeah. either. I mean, it's the two things, no precedent. And also we want to do what we want to do in January in the transfer market. And obviously, when you look at the people who have voted against the motion, and you see that all of them have got uh, their own interests at heart, and all of them had something to, uh, to preserve sure. uh, in that regard. So, I mean, when we look at the clubs involved, Manchester City, we understand, yeah. because they own a whole lot of clubs. Chelsea, again, the multi-club model is exactly. in place. Everton, um, you know, you might say, well, this could be part of uh, a bit of spite after their points deduction, which we might come to. But they are in the process of being taken over by 777 partners, which have interests in many clubs uh, mm. around the world. Uh, for how long? We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um there was, of course, Newcastle, who don't so much have a sister club or sister clubs as a sister league uh, yeah. of players to choose from. There is Nottingham Forest. Nottingham Forest owner also owns Olympiacos, as we mm -hmm. know. A couple of surprising, well, slightly surprising ones. Um, Sheffield United do have a Saudi Arabian owner, but the club has been sort of up for sale. Do you think that perhaps... There has been a, a sort of coordination across um, those those sort of national connections in Saudi Arabia that it might be helpful for Newcastle if if Sheffield United voted for this because it, it seems to me like Sheffield United as it stands would be one of the clubs who should be opposed to a motion like this because in essence it would make life more difficult for them. Yes, um, up to point, because first of all, the owner, as you said, the owner of Sheffield United is Abdullah bin Musaid Al Saud, and Al Saud indicates he is a member of the royal family. And I find it quite hard to believe that a member of the royal family would go against the interests of a club which is basically owned by his master and relative, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, in the end. Uh, who is, of course, the man at the head of PIF. But uh, Sheffield United also has um, an interest in another club. They're also part of the multi-club ownership um, family uh, because uh, Mr. Al Saud uh, also owns uh, Beershot, 
in um, in Belgium, mm. second division Belgian club. Belgium is very popular with people who want to uh, add um, clubs to their collection. So they they too have got an interest, uh, uh, Sheffield United, in terms of multi-club ownership. But quite clearly, I think it's not really casting uh, aspersions at the owner of Sheffield United to say that perhaps is the fact that he's a member of the Saudi royal family might have something to do with uh, the decision of Sheffield United to oppose the motion. What about Wolves and what about Burnley then? Because we know, Mm. you know, Wolves are owned by a Chinese conglomerate and Wolves is listed in their portfolio as as part of their entertainment uh, entities. They they mm. may well have plans similar to perhaps the, the... what what do you call it, an investment fund, a hedge fund, yeah. uh, whatever, that that owns Burnley, they may well have plans to move into a multi-club model as well, hence their decision to oppose this. Yes. Um, Wolverhampton Wanderers, I think it's because of their relationship with the Swiss club Grasshoppers uh, from Zurich, uh, with, with whom they've got a very close relationship, which might be uh, getting even closer. That's one thing. And as to Burnley, I think that the, the newish American owner also wishes to uh, adopt a multi-club ownership model. And there, there, were, there was a lot of talk about uh, Kortrijk uh, yet again in Belgium uh, in the spring uh, of this year. Uh, I don't think anything happened. I have to say I, the burnley Kortrijk story is not one I've been following very, very closely, but I know it was there. So when you look at it, all eight clubs which oppose the motion have got a finger into MCO one way or another. Uh, it can be in a huge way, like Manchester City, who have now 12 clubs as part of the City Football Group, which is by by far the most um, uh, successful of all multi-club uh, ownership um, comp- uh, entities. Uh, Everton, I'm pretty sure it's because the, our friends from 777 have had a word with the current regime, mm. if you can call that a regime, and said, guys, uh, we are a multi-club owner. We don't want you to start <laughs> to start, uh, you know, shooting down our model before, even before we get control of the club, if they ever get control of the club, which, as we know, is a completely different story. But obviously, 777 would have said, would have told Moshiri and whoever is taking decisions with Moshiri these days at, at Goodison, would have told them, you know what, um, no, you're not voting for this, you're voting against it, because what we want to do is exactly that. We want to be able to move players from one club to the next. Uh, to be fair to them, they haven't necessarily uh, used and abused the, uh, uh, the system of transferring players from one club to the next without uh, any notice being ta- given or taken mm-hmm. about their worth and, and, and as a means to uh, circumvent the financial fair play regulations. They haven't done that so far. There have been a few movements within the 777 empire, uh, but that's about it. Uh, On the other hand, um, it might be very, very different in the future, especially if they get control of a Premier League club, which of course would be the the jewel uh, in the crown for them. So, yeah, again, when you look at it, uh, the motives are self-interest. There's no other thing like that, uh, other thing than that. What I find slightly surprising is that um, they might all have interest to enable clubs to do these agreements with um, sister organizations, but they should realize that there are several levels here and that we are not playing in the same in the same division. And that when wolves are, you know, when you talk about their links with grasshoppers, they're playing in League Two compared to what Newcastle is doing with the Saudi um, Pro League, because obviously, it's not new that clubs have been doing these kind of things with when they have privileged relationships with other clubs. You know, we've done it. 
uh, I can remember, with Beveren mm-hmm. at Arsenal. Uh, um, Brighton, who voted against the motion? I was going to um, ask you about that, yeah, because yeah. Tony Bloom obviously is the owner of Brighton and it's uh, uh, Union Saint-Gillois. In Union, Union Saint-Gillois. Uh, but this would actually give um, substance to the claims that have been made and for a while now that actually Tony Bloom has withdrawn most of his interest from Union Saint-Gillois and that um, the, the current chairman and owner, I think he has 75% of the of the shares, who is a very close friend of his, but that the, the two operations are now uh, distinct. Uh, I have to say that in this context, I, I must say I've slightly changed my view of what's happened with Brighton and um, Saint-Gilles, uh, is that I think their model is quite virtuous, actually, um, because they haven't, it's, it's worked to the benefit of both clubs, you see with Carlo Mitoma, for example, you know, how it, they were able to use Saint-Gilles as a kind of fishing, finishing school for him. Mm-hmm. But that's worked for both clubs. And that's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And there was no intent when they did that to circumvent financial fair play regulations. They just wanted to use a privileged relationship with another club, which, other, as I said, other clubs have done it. We've done it. Manchester United used to have... Um, I mean, it was almost like Royal Antwerp were, were part yeah. of Manchester United. Uh, Chelsea had a slightly more ambiguous relationship with Vitesse, but again, it was used for, uh, I would say, the the furtherment uh, of um, of players who showed great talent in their academies and they wanted them to play in a competitive environment. I don't think there's anything specifically wrong with that. This is different. This is clearly aimed at enabling player movements which go against the letter as well as the spirit of of fair play regulations and to create an even greater imbalance between the haves and have-nots. And the fact that the most talked about transfer or loan transfer uh, is that of uh, Ruben Neves Mm. uh, from Al-Hilal to uh, Newcastle, that is absolutely shocking because that shouldn't be allowed to happen. He was bought for an absolute fortune by the Saudi club and he can be loaned to Newcastle for a a pittance because the clubs can agree what they want between themselves because they're the same club. Mm. And then um, just coming in January, uh, bang, uh, you know, when Newcastle have shown their limits when they have been without several of their key players and Sandro Tonali was going to be uh, one of those. And as we know, he's, he's suspended uh, for betting activities. Uh, and so you get Ruben Neves coming in for hardly any money and it doesn't make a dent on your um, balance sheet in terms of financial fair play. And that is totally wrong. I mean, Do you when think, I say sorry, that, no. I mean, I think it should be absolutely obvious. And I'm pretty sure that if this were to happen or if Jordan Henderson, for Christ's sake, was going to go to Newcastle, I think people would say, uh, I think we have a problem here. This is not right. Well, I'd be all right with Jordan Henderson going to Newcastle, to be honest. But I, I know what you mean about the about the the process of it. I mean, do you think that this is sort of a line being drawn in the sand to an extent? Because like you say, these relationships have existed between football Mm. clubs for a long time. And there is an imbalance, of course, and big clubs will always use things to their own advantage. But ultimately, it is quite circular or it can work both for the other club and it can work for the players as well. Yes. You know, who are being sent out, who who develop, who, who um, you know, get playing time, who can mature as players and people and all the rest of it. You can see that there is um, 
there are benefits all round. Whereas something like this, like we haven't seen it yet, but is it a case of like, okay, once we cross the Rubicon, once that threshold is gone over, like what happens if Newcastle bring in Ruben Neves? Everyone will say, this is absolute bullshit. This should not be allowed to happen. But ultimately, because of this vote and because of the way football works these days, nobody can do anything about it other than talk about it on a podcast or give out about it in the new newspaper column or say out loud to to anyone who will listen, this should not be allowed to happen, but ultimately nobody can do a thing about it. You've written a piece, you know, for, for Eurosport. It's out today, the headline, multi-club ownership of clubs. The Premier League gives itself a license to cheat. So this is like a new development, the next step in what multi-club ownership is actually for. It's not necessarily for the benefit of the smaller club, the fringe players, the youth players, uh, and the big club. It is only for these big clubs owned yeah. by sovereign wealth funds or, or whatever it might be. Nation states. Mm. Um, and, and just to add to that, I would say that if you look at Karu Mitama, I'm going back to this example because I think it is actually quite um, significant. Brighton, it is Brighton who actually bought him from Kawasaki. It is Brighton. It's not Union Saint-Gilloise. They bought him, mm-hmm. so it is in their books. Then they loaned him for a season to Union Saint-Gilloise, where he was brilliant. Then he was brought back from his loan, being a better player, but they paid for him. Newcastle haven't paid for Ruben Neves. PIF is paying for Ruben Neves. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different ball game, And I think that there is a, we have to be very clear about that because the system has been used, but it hasn't been abused to the extent that it can now be, and it will be, because... It's very simple. Uh, I mean, I I wouldn't say we're totally toothless about that because there are two bodies who could actually do something about it. And these two bodies are UEFA and FIFA because UEFA will be directly impacted for that. But isn't isn't Seferin like a proponent of the multi-club model more than... He is. I mean, I I was at the last UEFA Congress. There's one coming in February in Paris, but that was the last one in Lisbon in the spring. And at the end of the Congress... Um, Mr. Chefrin gave a, a press conference, which was, you know, a complete farce, basically, because, well, it was a farce. But he was asked <laughs> specifically about multi-club ownership, which is one of the biggest subjects uh, there is in, in world football at the moment. And we were expecting uh, words to the effect that it's multi-club ownership is something that UEFA has long, stand, long stood against. Uh, we, are, we are aware of what is going on. We're looking at it. And in fact, the response was completely different. He basically said, well, we have to keep the door open for new ownership models. I thought, okay, all right. I think we get the message loud and clear here. UEFA is not going to do a thing about it, even though uh, this type of arrangements will have just as deep an impact on the Champions League and the Europa League and the European Conference League that it will have on the Premier League or other national leagues. So it shouldn't be allowed to happen by UEFA, but it will. And then there's FIFA, because FIFA is basically the clearinghouse for all transfers. And there is nothing that would prevent FIFA from perhaps uh, amending its regulations in such a way that this type of uh, methods, mechanisms, uh, can no longer be used by clubs. Um, And if they do so, they face a transfer ban or things of, of that kind, which FIFA can very easily do, but they won't do it. Can you imagine one second, Jenny Infantino 
Saudi Arabia's greatest ally in the in world football, saying something about um, an amendment to a, a regulation which is in favour of Saudi Arabia's league and interest in the Premier League. Of course, it's not going to happen. No. So we, we we found ourselves yet again confronted with this problem, which is recurrent problem in, in 21st century football, is that we all know it's wrong and we all know it's going to happen. And we know there's actually bugger all we can do about it. I mean, you, you mentioned that there might be implications for European football. I read something this morning that if um, Ineos, who own Nice go through with their purchase of a, a stake in Manchester United, it might be a case that if both those clubs finish in Champions League qualifying positions, only one of those clubs can uh, can actually play in the Champions League. I, I mean, uh, are, there, are there wider implications for the multi-club ownership model? Yes. That beyond the the finances and, you know, the various ways that that ownership model can be a, a channel for, I'm going to use the word corruption because, you know, let's talk about it in the worst case scenario, that that is, you know, an obvious uh, potential outcome yes. of some of this. Yes, but, absolutely. But, you know, financial and sporting and otherwise, but what about, you know, what it might mean for certain football clubs and how their success might be impacted by the fact that the owners have got, let's say, a more important club in their portfolio. Uh, in the case of Augustin Nice, if um, Radcliffe is taking his minority stake in, in Manchester United, it's fairly obvious where the priority is going to be. Mm. I mean, Augustin Nice will become a mere satellite. And we're forgetting the third, by the way, he also owns a Swiss club, which everybody's forgotten about already. Um, so... <laughs> And uh, which is Lausanne, isn't it? Radcliffe. I think it's Lausanne. So yes, it would. That's exactly what will happen. There will be major partners and minor partners and partners which barely, which are there to, uh, well, I mean, just to make up the numbers and to be used as conduits, and um, to perhaps like imagine, for example, if you if you have like seven 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 have interest in seven different clubs, four of which you own more or less completely or you have control over. Um, and you realize, okay, if we want, we want that player, uh, but if we make the, um, if we go to the selling club and we are uh, Genoa, uh, it will cost more money than if we go to this club and we are Standard because we haven't got the same, you know, the level of interest will not be the same. Sure. A, a Serie A club, if they stay in Serie A, has got more financial power than a club in the Belgian first division. Or you can imagine, you know what, you know what I mean by mm -hmm. that. So you can, you can perhaps play the market to your advantage. And then nothing prevents you once Genoa has um, bought the, the player to send him direct to, um, to Standard or, and reciprocally. We saw what happened not that long ago with um, the uh, Ghanaian player who was playing in the Danish league and uh, was transferred to Lyon via Molenbeek without... I don't think that he even... Uh, I'm not even sure he set foot in Belgium because on the very day that Molenbeek bought the player, Molenbeek loaned him immediately to Olympique Lyonnais, to John Texter, who is also a part owner of uh, mm. Crystal Palace, as we know. And apparently FIFA is looking at it because if there is a clearer example of a bridging loan, I, I don't know it. But that, that shows exactly how you can use and abuse the multi-club ownership model. The multi-club ownership model anyway is, by definition, skewed 
and and should be illegal perhaps not because there's a problem there andrew i'm just you know checking myself here mm-hmm. because obviously the clubs which are partaking in this model will tell you that if you prevented this from happening this would be restraint of trade and they could take take you to the tribunal Mm. So it, it's complicated. But again, there would be ways uh, around it. If you, if I said, if you want to take part in our competitions, you have to uh, agree to certain principles and regulations. These are the principles and regulations of the competition. If you sign up, you, you know, you, you're under no obligation to take part in the Champions League. You're under no obligation to take part in the Europa League. It's just the way it is, right? Mm. But if you do not want to accept or to play uh, within our rules, well, I'm terribly sorry, we won't invite you. You know, if you want to be in, you've got to respect the rules. It's a, it's a membership. So it would be possible to do something. But unfortunately, because this is where the money is going, is going towards clubs, which um, are, you know, the multi-club ownership model, even though you have to say that with the exception of Manchester City, it's a model that hasn't been particularly successful if you, in terms of performance on the pitch, Right. If you look at Chelsea, you can't say that it's been a massive improvement since uh, Chelsea has bought Racing Club de Strasbourg or since clearly Ken Bully have arrived. Mm. Um, if you look at, um, you know, again, what's happened with the 777 clubs, I think the only positive has been the promotion of Genoa, but which was expected because they had just been relegated. But elsewhere, it's, it's near catastrophic. And you could take that again from many of many of the clubs, many other examples. It's not a successful model on, in the sporting. Way. It's it's a model that is trying to bully its way into football under the pressure of, on one hand, nation states and the other private investment funds, most of which come from the United States of America. So I mean the the the, the thinking then, if these models are not successful from a sporting perspective. Mm-hmm then there must be other motivations for putting these in place beyond yeah. because you know you you can have i think without trying to um be in any way complimentary about Manchester City or the City Group i think there is perhaps uh, which comes hand in hand, of course, with the resources available to them. But there is a, a sort of level of professionalism about that organization that maybe isn't present in That's some of these other club models, right? Yeah. Um, but if you're 777, you know, and again, I'll point people towards the, the Josimar website in which you and others do fantastic investigative reporting around you know, these kinds of things that there is, um, without specifically referring to 777, perhaps, you know, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul and money is moving around in ways which, you know, probably won't be beneficial for the football clubs on a sporting level. Absolutely. And of course, the, the one of the big fears, uh, and we're not talking about any specific clubs here, is money laundering. Um, mm. it's a fantastic way to launder money. To, I mean, the best way to launder money, I mean, the best context or environments in which to launder money are, are football and uh, contemporary art. It's it's very well known. That's that's the way of contemporary, even old masters sometimes, if you think of what one particular Leonardo da Vinci painting, mm. I think we all have in mind for that. Uh, it's it's really fantastically easy to do that, and and football and, and sports betting and contemporary art and 
art in general. Yes, great ways of laundering money, dirty money. And when it comes to those arrangements, which enable you to transfer money legally between entities which will place, be placed in multiple countries and sometimes multiple continents, you can easily imagine how this can be used for nefarious purposes, uh, quite obviously. Um, and the thing as well is that we're talking about, again, the motivations are not necessarily the same. Like, for example, the motivations of, um, we haven't talked about them, but the Qatar Sports Investment uh, and, uh, and, and uh, PIF and uh, City Football Group are completely different from the motivations of, say, Clear Lake or mm. John Texter. They're totally different. The aim is still to make money for these people. They still want to make loads of money. There is, on one hand, uh, a fear of missing out because it is still perceived, and honestly, something that is true, it is still perceived, especially within uh, the US, that uh, football, European football, is massively undervalued and there's tons of dollars to be made there if we can get to the right, uh, if we can use the right model, purchase distressed assets, build them up again. There is tons of money to be made made there. It's it's a scene that hasn't been fully exploited, heaven help us. Mm. So it's it's possible to do that. There are also people, and, and I won't name names, but I can think of one particular um, Asian uh, conglomerate, um, which I don't think is any longer um, active in football, which was very clearly set up for the purpose of uh, manipulating uh, matches and perhaps making tons of money on the illegal betting markets. That's, uh, you know, mm. most people won't have heard of them, by the way. They, you know, the multi-club ownership doesn't just happen at the level of Newcastle. It, it, you would be amazed that you will find out that um, a, a third division Cypriot club is owned by the same person who has a, a club in Bulgaria and Moldova. And, and it's, it's quite astonishing, uh, the kind of thing that goes on. But it's a model that is, you know, more and more prevalent and at all levels of the game. So, yes, in itself, it, it, it is a very um, worrying trend because the setup itself is worrying and is open to all sorts of abuses. And there are just no checks and balances, no proper checks and balances in place to control that. And, uh, you know, the it, it were Ruben Neves to move to, uh, to Newcastle, we would have a perfect illustration of this and people would be, you know, incensed by it and rightly so. But this is only the, the visible side of it, the visible part of it. There's far, far more happening. And it can be abused in, in so many ways. It's absolutely extraordinary. Um, say your club, for example, is competing in the Europa Conference League or whatever, and another is competing in the Champions League. Uh, the club which is competing in the Champions League doesn't have any more money to spend because of fair financial fair play regulations. The club which is in the Europa Conference League or not qualified for Europe doesn't have the same, well, if they uh, are kicked out of the Europa Conference League, who cares? And if they're not competing in the UEFA competition, who cares? Mm. So Club B will purchase for $12 million, whatever, player Z, and then loan it immediately to the club which is taking part in the Champions League. And that's it. Mm. You know, done. Nothing to say, nothing to see here, sir. And um, it's, it's, it's obvious that if, especially in the world of football, if you give people this opportunity, I don't think that uh, people are going to be um, too keen to refuse it. Um, I think they'll jump on that opportunity and they'll use the system for all that it's worth. And um, 
which is why it is a decision, which is why I called it a license to cheat. And I think it is a license to cheat in a way. Uh, we shouldn't forget, though, that 12 Premier League clubs voted in favour of the motion. So against this, you know, um, against enabling clubs to circumvent FFP rules that way. Mm. And uh, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily extremely virtuous, but at least they showed some intent, um, whatever the reasons for that may be. I mean, how much do you think, given that the city uh, multi-club ownership model has been in place for quite a while, are we still very much in the infancy of this kind of thing? Is it a case that that organisations are are sort of pushing to see how much they can get away with beyond, you know, the the very obvious ways of moving money around, which is mm-hmm. tied up with with players, because players, contracts, image rights, bonuses, agents' fees. There is, um, you know, as we've seen recently with, with some of the investigations into Chelsea, payments which don't appear on the books, which have been uncovered and all the mm-hmm. rest of it, that there is a lot of money sloshing around simply with the players. But when you talk about prize money, when you talk about commercial uh, deals, when you talk about the the continuing issue of betting companies which sort of exist but don't really exist and mm. and all the rest of it i mean are we sort of in the in the uh the wild west times a little bit where it's going to take some time for us to understand just quite how far this is going to go yeah um I think where it's going, we have a fair idea where it's going. It's um, and the way to guess which direction it's going is just in your own mind. Try to paint a picture of where you would want football to go, right? And then go and in the then, opposite direction, and then and then go and then go the other way. And the other way is the way it's going. Yeah. So whenever um, something, which means basically everything that is worth preserving is is worth something. And therefore, will be will be destroyed or exploited. That's the way it's going, <clears throat> and it's called capitalism, friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's is unfortunately a very sad truth. <laughs> um, and that's the way football is going. Uh, the 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 counterpower, um, the counterpowers, which exist, have yet to federate. Um, there are some moves afoot um, which are led by fan organizations um, which are trying to uh, at least regroup on the European level uh, to fight multi-club ownership. And one of the ways to do that is by creating a... um, a kind of lobby, basically, a supporters lobby, which is powerful enough and representative enough to have some political weight. And then what do you do? You go, uh, and I'm afraid that you go to the European Commission. And unfortunately, you know, the United Kingdom is no longer part of that game. But you go to the European Commission, uh, you go to the Council of Europe, you go to these institutions, and you try and put pressure on politicians to make them understand what the hell is going on here and that there is a societal dimension, that there is a criminal dimension as well to all this. And that therefore, if the so-called governing bodies are incapable of governing it, governing football, somebody else has to do it, which I think the case should be made for FIFA because FIFA should be clearly disbanded. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, and the same 
goes up to a point for UEFA because it certainly hasn't covered itself in glory since Mr. Ceferin uh, was elected president and then re-elected without a vote. Um, so you look at the uh, the governing bodies, you think they're not doing the work they should be doing. And the, the people who are the first people who are affected by what's happening in football, i.e. the fans and the, and the players, are by definition the two categories of people, I should add the officials uh, and the coaches, are the people whose opinion is never sought and doesn't count and counts for nothing. Mm. And um, so you have to change the impetus. And you can't turn to you, towards UEFA or FIFA because they won't do a thing because they're part of the system. So you've got to go out of the system. So it means either what you have happening in Germany, for example, at the moment, where this fans are starting to demonstrate in stadiums against multi-club ownership, uh, and then move to the political level, which is to work with institutions, and particularly European institutions, to put in place regulations which will keep the world of football in check. Uh, I don't place really, really high hopes on the British football regulator because I think that the interests of the Premier League are such and the way it depicts itself as a as a standard bearer for the greatness of, of, of England uh, is going to protect them and the fact that they've got so many supporters deep in, in, in power and at, in the House of Commons. I think it's going to be very difficult to keep these people in check. There might be the excesses, the worst excesses, I, I do hope so, uh, will be corrected, but I don't expect the football regulator, especially the way that the rule has been defined or not defined mm. in the white paper, to be, have this quite the same power. And maybe I, I hope I'm proved wrong, but I think if you want to, the problem is that um, the door has already been left ajar and said, what do you do if suddenly at European level people say, you know what, multi-club ownership, sorry guys, we can't have that. So what are you going to do? Are you going to turn towards the City Football Group and tell them, you know what, Girona, uh, you're going to have to, to forget about that. You're going to have to forget about your, you know, all your all these clubs you own. You've got to sell them. I don't think it's going to happen, is no. it? Uh, I don't think that uh, 777, uh, if they still exist, uh, will be particularly keen on the idea of, uh, well, you can't be active in Italy and Belgium and, and, and France at the same time, and, and even Spain and Sevilla where they have a minority stake. You can't, you can't do that. But the only thing you will be able to do is to say that from now on, this is over. Or to put in place regulations which are such in the terms of uh, movement of players uh, from one club to the next to guarantee the complete independence saying, yes, you can own several clubs, that's fine, but there has to be uh, absolutely watertight um, regulations in place which prevent you, prohibit you from doing uh, things you shouldn't be doing, uh, which are uh, affecting the uh, the balance of the game and and the moral and and sporting e equilibrium of the game. But but yeah, this could be put in place. I mean, there's the proof of it is exactly was given in that vote because if that vote had gone through, if the motion had been voted in, we wouldn't be having this conversation, and we would actually be thinking, you know, what well, the Premier League was a force for good in this particular instance. But these things exist in real life, in society, in the world that we live in, right? Like you know, if if I can't, um, for example, sell you my house or, or let's say, uh, do a deal with you over a property or whatever, you know, if we have a, a common interest, I can't sell mm -hmm. my house to you for a pound or something because, you know, yeah. that's not the market rate. That's not how it works. So all these things that you're talking about, they do kind of exist within the, oh, the structures of society in the world that we live in, just not in football yeah, because because football because there is an exception. Football is an exception. 
football is not just an economic asset it's a cultural asset and it's a community asset mm. and and it's it's you know it's a term that our old friend the Ivan Gazidis was so fond of using custodianship it's yeah. like we're not owners we're custodians of a great thing and I, which by the way i think is right that's exactly right what is Arsenal Football Club? Arsenal Football Club is a history, a culture, and its fans. That's what Arsenal Football Club is. It's not a stadium named after uh, a Gulf airline. It's not about American owners. It's about, about the people whose life is Arsenal, who are Arsenal. Mm -hmm. We are Arsenal. We've talked about that many times. Yeah. So football is different. It's, very, it's different from anything else, which is why there is a sporting uh, exception which is in place, you know, at European level. And there are things which are done for sport which wouldn't be allowed to happen in, in other fields. And of course, there's an economic and financial dimension to it. And of course, people do all those deals all of the time in other fields. The difference is that here, what you're talking about is not a strict business transaction. We're talking about transactions which have a direct impact on communities, have a societal, cultural impact, which goes way, way beyond the purely economic dimension of the entities concerned. And because of that, there should be guidelines and, and, and in place. And I think we all agree with that. And by the way, if you went to those clubs, even to those clubs, listen to what they're saying, those multi-club owned you know, um, clubs, they, they will also parrot the same message of custodianship, of cultural asset, societal, community engagement. They will mm. all put that across. And in fact, it's probably the first thing they're going to do because they want to convince you that they're proper football people. Otherwise, they wouldn't care. You don't do that if you do some kind of, not dodgy, but kind sure. of legal operation with a friend about the purchase of this plot of land. And it's okay, it's a bit... Mm -mm. But it's legal. This is different. You, you're not when you buying, you know, that plot of land for a for a pound or a euro. You're not uh, impacting the life of tens of thousands of people. Sure. Here, but this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a, an asset which is impossible, which is an intangible asset. It's not not fungible, by the way. It's it's because it's real. Mm. <laughs> it's intangible but real, and it's that dimension which I think those people want to take out of the game, and basically they want to follow. They want to go to an American style, you know, uh, type of model in terms where yes, you really move from club to brand. Where there are still fans and who are passionate, they might be passionate Yankees fans or Lakers fans, and they exist. But on the other hand, the, the thread has been broken, right? It has been broken. We all know that. You can move one team from or one franchise from one city to the next and so on. Mm. It doesn't change anything. It's allowed. Who cares? Um, and so they want us to take us in that direction those who are coming from the private financial sector. Then you've got the nation states. There's not an awful lot of them at, at, at play here because there couldn't be because you need an awful lot of ready cash to do that. But the few who are there, they certainly intend to be as powerful as they poss possibly can be. Um, you know, uh, certainly the Emiratis, the Qataris are a little bit behind now, but they're still involved in, in multi-club ownership, but in a way that ship has sailed a little bit. The Saudis have only just arrived. And of course, they're going to be active in, in many other fields. It's part of the 2030, 2034 vision. Mm -hmm. um, 
So their motivations are different, but but the impact and the effect is is the same. Is that we move him away from uh, what we understood as football is not no longer the football that we are taking part in. In a way, we are consuming a product um, that is different from the product we think we consume. If you if this sure. makes sense. It does. And look, there's so much more to un- unpack from this. And yeah. The idea that football as a sport uh, and the, the sort of catchphrase sporting integrity is, is important, uh, becomes less and less credible the more that goes on and the more that you read and, and the more that you understand about all this. But um, we better leave it there for now. The piece is yeah. on Eurosport. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. People can have a good read of it. Uh, as ever, Philippe, a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed to Philippe. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Philippe Auclair, at Philippe Auclair. He's also on Blue Sky with that name as well, if you're a member over there. Philippe's column, which I mentioned in the chat there with him, is in the show notes. A link to it is in the show notes. It's in French, but of course you can just put stuff in Google Chrome now and translate it to English if your French is as non-existent as mine. And of course, Philippe does great stuff for Josimar, which is one of the only outlets doing proper, detailed, investigative reporting into the underbelly of football, as you might like to call it. You can buy a subscription there. It's relatively cheap. Jossimarfootball.com is where you need to go for that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, as I mentioned, this is a two-part show with me now to talk Arsenal women, Gabriel Jesus, and more. It's Tim Stillman. Hello, Tim. Hello there. You wrote a very big piece uh, last week, and it was published this week on Arsblog News, with regards to the Arsenal women's team, and it stems off the back of a reaction to the team photo, which was published a few weeks back. Maybe just for those who haven't been on top of this, what was that reaction, and why was there a reaction to that photo? Yeah, sure. So the reaction was um, the fact that there are no visible um, there are visible players of colour um, in the Arsenal women's squad at the moment, and this um, this is this is something that when Arsenal put the official first team photo up, um, it got a lot of traction, a lot of reaction on Twitter, a not very helpful Daily Mail article, if you can conceive of imagine, such a thing. Imagine, imagine. <laughs> to fan the flames a little bit, the Daily Mail of all publications. Mm. Uh, But more seriously, yeah, like a lot of people noticed straight away uh, no players of colour in the Arsenal squad. And obviously that's even more of a thing, I think, for Arsenal, um, just because of the history we have on the men's and the women's side um, as well. So you've only got to walk around the Emirates Stadium and you'll see Anita Asante, who I spoke to for the piece, Rachel Yankee, Mary Phillip, uh, Alex Scott, um, completely ubiquitous on our screens now, on the side of our stadium. So the, it's the women's side and the men's side. I've obviously got a really proud history, mm. certainly of black representation, less so South Asian. Um, and that's that's 
uh, I think, an issue across the men's and women's game. But So a lot of people noticed that. And to be fair, a lot of people, I think, had noticed before. I've certainly had a lot of questions on Twitter about it from people. You know, why is this? This looks a bit weird to me. Um, so I, I really felt that we should um, cover the subject but cover it properly. Mm-hmm. So it, it took a couple of months, really, to put together um, off the back of the kind of the – I say the furore. I, I don't want to call it a furore, actually, just because um, I think it's right that people notice things like that and ask questions about it. Um, and so I, I don't think it was misplaced, um, you know, so I don't want to make out that, like, people were being unreasonable to notice that. They weren't. Um, but I, I really wanted I, – I think, you know, we have – look, we have, a, like, a good reputation for our women's coverage, and I felt we should cover that. Um, subject, but that we should do it properly, uh, which is why it took a little while. Because what I didn't want to do was just write an opinion piece, me, 39-year-old white man, saying, well, this is all the stuff I've read about. Because this has been a subject in the women's game for a long time. Mm-hmm. This isn't something that just popped up when the Arsenal team photo popped out. That's just kind of when it crossed over and people started noticing. But this is a, a fairly long-term discussion and subject and, and actually stuff has been going on in the background to address this. And one of the things I wanted to put across in the piece as well is that this is an issue for women's women's football overall as well as, as, as Arsenal. Arsenal are not the only WSL club that doesn't have a player of colour. Everton don't either. Um, and the numbers of players of colour in the England team have dropped dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years. And there mm. are a multitude of reasons for that. And I really wanted to get to those in the piece by talking to people with direct experience and knowledge of those issues. So, you know, in talking to those people and without going into to all the details, because what I'll do is I'll obviously put a link in the show notes. People can go and read this piece and 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 read, you know, what the people you spoke to uh, talked about with regards to this subject. But, you know, why is it that a club like Arsenal, which is incredibly diverse, you know, from top to bottom in terms of, you know, staff, players, fans, you know, from the area within perhaps, you know, one of the most diverse areas in in London, if not the UK, mm. why, you know, a, a cliff note explanation as to why that diversity is not present within the women's team? Yeah, so let's, let's start with Arsenal and the first team. Um, one of the people I spoke to for the piece was the academy manager. I'll come on to in a minute wh- why um, I did that and what that kind of... I guess the club's efforts underneath that have been ongoing for a while, like I say, not just as a reaction mm. to this this kind of reaction, as it were. Um, but for Arsenal in particular, so most WSL clubs, you could count the players of colour on one hand. And, and I do have to say, I didn't want to put this in the piece because I wanted to keep the piece focused on the matter at hand and because it was important and mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be my voice. I think there are a lot of WSL clubs who are hiding behind Arsenal on this and are happy for Arsenal. Well, I say happy, but have allowed Arsenal to soak a lot of this up when most of them maybe have one or two players of colour, aren't doing that much better on this subject. Um, but for, from Arsenal's point of view, one of the reasons it's so stark is Arsenal have a Swedish manager and recruit heavily from Scandinavia. And uh, certainly the picture in Scandinavian women's football is that it's mainly white women. 
Um, that's not an unreasonable thing for the manager to do at all, not just because it's a market he knows. It is the best market in women's football, uh, Scandinavia. So Scandinavia mm. was really the first place that really put time, effort and resource into, into women's football. So it is a big hotbed of talent. The Swedish national team always get to semi-finals and finals of tournaments. They're big. Mm. They've kind of been, their league has been overtaken by England and Germany um, and probably Spain, but the talent is there and the talent there is some of the best talent in the world. So it, if you can get an advantage in that market, I'd compare it to Arsene Wenger buying from France in the 90s. Sure. It's very similar. So if you've got an edge in Scandinavia, you use it. Um, but also, you know, Arsenal had an Australian manager before that. They have Australian players as well. And again, the picture for women's football in Australia is that it's kind of mainly a white women's sport at the moment. So there, there are little things and there are little bits and pieces around the first team recruitment. Now, I think where probably Arsenal deserves some criticism, and I know this is something they're fixing, is the fact that, and this is the case for a lot of women's clubs, the, the scouting and recruitment isn't as mature as the men's game. So you get a Scandinavian manager, you'll mainly get Scandinavian players because the recruitment and sure. scouting infrastructure is not the same as in the men's game. And something, you know, you look at the World Cup, Women's World Cup that happened this summer, some of the big, well, the teams that surprised people, maybe they shouldn't have, Nigeria, South Africa, Jamaica, you know, countries like this, and they really demonstrated there is a lot of talent out there. Um, so around the first team, there's definitely something about the recruitment. Underneath that, there's lots of socioeconomic factors, and they're not just restricted to race. I think this is true of white working class girls as well. Lots of, um, they were called regional talent centres for girls were closed by the FA about 15 years ago or so in places like Romford and Hackney and West London and largely inner city, inner city areas. So recruitment at a grassroots level has become very biased towards largely white areas. And as much as we kind of say Arsenal is a North London club, and it is, Arsenal women play in Borehamwood, train in St Albans, you know, have connections to local universities so that they, they've been a bit more Hertfordshire. Mm. Um, and in the piece it goes, I, I speak to the academy manager and he talks about how they're making more efforts, greater efforts in inner cities, but also things just like closure of spaces, uh, public spaces. That's something Anita Asante spoke to me about. She said, when I was younger, I was playing on tennis courts and basketball courts with other kids from my estate and they've all gone. Mm. basically they've all been built on so it's harder to or it has been anyway harder to surface some of that talent i do think that's about to change and the other thing i think that will change it quite organically is that now being an elite women's footballer looks like a career you can make a living from which was not always the case and so that didn't always attract um, should we say talent from like working class areas? Now it's all over Sky Sports, and sure. Alessia Russo is advertising Oakley sunglasses and all of that, and Leah Williamson's at three award shows a week and all of that. <laughs> that will all have an impact in terms of oh wow, actually being a women's footballer is a career mm. um, that I can pursue. So there, there will be, I think, in the next few years, hopefully some organic kind of turnover, but really it's, it's, it's as much a social mobility thing, I think, in terms of 
surfacing talent in inner city areas which which tend to be a bit more ethnically diverse yeah i mean it, it is about sort of creating pathways for people to play the game to get to a certain level to go to another level etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know one of the things that, that we've seen during the week is you know certain reactions to the piece about how um, you know, this might be about tokenism, how it might be about quotas and things like that. But, but ultimately, what it means if you diversify the pool of talent you can choose from is that you have a wider network of players to choose from. Obviously, in any elite sport, it is about your talent. It is about your ability, and that will ultimately uh, decide whether or not you get the opportunities. There are other factors, of course, we know, but the, the cream, if you want to say, will will rise to the top. That's the way it works in football and, and most sports. But if there are if there are blockages or walls between talented people and those opportunities. It's incumbent on Arsenal, it's incumbent on everybody involved in the game to try and knock those barriers down, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, that you know, there are two angles to this, really, that we, we explored in the piece. One is the importance of representation in itself. Representation is not an ends in its own right. Mm -hmm. However, it is important. And I spoke to a few fans, um, you know, from... Uh, from mixed race and black backgrounds in particular and from South Asian backgrounds who kind of said, yeah, this bothers me. I don't see myself. And I've spoken to people who, you know, choosing a club to support and don't want to support Arsenal women because they don't see themselves represented. And and so that, there's that element to it that it just is important to mm. see people who look like you, remind you of you and your friends and things like that. Um and, you know, one of the people I spoke to was uh, Marva Creel. Um, Marva is, I spoke to Marva because she's an Everton fan and I wanted to do the angle about Everton not having players of colour, but she actually played in Tottenham's academy and she talked about how, like, she's like, I'm from Tottenham and I went and trained with Tottenham and it was all white girls and she was like, that's not where I went to school or the area mm. I grew up in. Um, but she spoke about how Farah Williams was a big, big... Um, kind of influence for her now far as white but um far as from a very like working class background in fact farrah williams was um she was homeless um for a few years while she was playing uh, she does a lot of work with homeless charities but she just said like she identified with farrah because of the way she speaks because of you know i guess slang if you want to call it that she just said she reminded me of me and mm. my friends and that was a big reason she really got into Everton women because that's where Farrell was playing so there is that angle to it but you, you're right like arguably it's not for me to say which is the bigger angle but the fact is I don't know how anyone could possibly argue like the the people that make that kind of oh surely you just want the best talent yes exactly that is exactly it and we're not getting it mm. when you're not like, why would you possibly argue against every single person having a level playing field and then letting them compete? That's what this is about. It's not about supplanting talent. And it's quite frustrating when people kind of say, oh, quotas, like quotas, it's not mentioned in the piece. Mm -hmm. We are at the sharp end of this to the point that there are two out of 12 WSL clubs who don't have a single player of colour that, that's a really, really big consequence and still nobody's talking about quotas or anything like that. 
Um, so it, it's about getting the best talent. And one of the best examples, I think, in the piece, when I spoke to Anita Asante, she talked about how Arsenal needed a left-footed centre-back this summer because they lost Hafaeli and they couldn't find one. Like, they could not find one. They signed two right-footed centre-backs because there aren't many left top-class left-footed centre-backs kicking about in women's football. And Anita just said to me, there's got to be a 25 or 26-year-old black girl out there somewhere, whether she's English, whether she's from another country, who probably could have been that player and is lost to the game. And that really made me think about, in a women's context, sorry, in the men's context mm. at the moment, we have, I think, three black Londoners in the squad, in Bukayo Saka, Eddie Nketiah and Reese Nelson. It's inconceivable that if they were girls, all three of them, um, with the same level of talent, would have been footballers. At least one of them would have been lost, probably two, maybe even all three. Like, imagine Bukayo Saka not becoming a footballer because the opportunity wasn't there for him to do so. Mm. That's as stark as I can put it. And if Bukayo Saka was a girl, that's incredibly likely to have happened. So that that shows you we're losing talent. And that's a big part of the point of this. To, to what extent now does the, <clears throat> does the increased profile of the women's game, the greater resources that are, are now available to... To clubs, you know, there is a, a deal, of course, at Sky Sports, and that brings in money. And I know that you know many, many of the women's teams are, how do you put it, not not necessarily uh, loss makers or whatever, but they're sort of funded from within the club. And obviously, there are different dynamics in that. But this greater profile, you know, with the the success of the World Cup, with the success of the Lionesses, you know, how much is that going to help football? I think the wider women's football uh, world address this issue for the benefit of all the players and all the teams because you know you could i suppose if you wanted to make an argument that that you're sort of restricted by the resources that you have available to you and you it's difficult to uh, scout and it's difficult to set up uh, centers of excellence and things like that as more money comes into the game is there a need, let's say, to prioritise a certain amount of that money going back into the game rather than player wages and recruitment and those kinds of things. Yeah, I, so the, a lot of this is already happening, um, to be honest. And, and so the FA, the FA are not a body I would often speak that highly of. They have got a lot of things right around women's football in the last 15 to 20 years. That's why England have won the Euros and gone to a World Cup final mm -hmm. and why they have one of the deepest squads in the world. Like The, the FA has invested. And this, um, this issue I mentioned earlier around closure of regional talent centres, like they, they realised the... I guess they'd say, well, of course, unintended consequence, again, of, of closing those and what that would do to to the talent, particularly from people from certain backgrounds. Now, mm -hmm. clearly that comes down probably to a lack of diversity as well. I'm going to speculate here because I don't know, but when those decisions were made, were people from working class areas, were black women, Asian women involved in those discussions when it happened? Possibly not. And therefore, that's what happens when you have a lack of diversity. You don't see immediately see all the consequences of the things you do. However, that, that has been addressed. Like I say, this has been a conversation in women's football for a few years now. 
And so one of the things the Arsenal Academy director, James Honeyman, told me was that actually they've, they've reopened a lot of kind of talent centres. And now they're at a stage where they say every girl in the country is within 30 minutes um, of, a, of a kind of indoor um, talent centre. So a, a lot of this stuff, I think, and I hope that in a couple of years, you'll really start to see. And if you look at the Arsenal under-21s at the moment, it's... It, it's a better picture. And I put the picture in the piece of mm. a picture of the under-21s at the moment. And, you you know, there's talent coming through like Michelle Ajimang, who's going to sign a professional contract in February when she turns 18. She's already scored for the first team. Uh, there's a girl called Araya Dennis who's out on loan at Crystal Palace and doing really well, scored again last night, actually. So, like, the under-21s looks a bit better. Mm-hmm. And, again, that's that's a bit because of the FA. And that is because, again, Arsenal recognise this issue, I think, a few years ago as well. It's just it takes a little while. It's almost like the refereeing discussion, right? You want better referees and you've got to train them up and all that, but actually that takes a few years Mm -hmm. to filter through. So I I don't, again, it's not for me to be complacent about, but I think it certainly sounds like uh, the picture will be better on England winning the Euros. I mean, that you, you could look at it two ways. Like, yes, that that, and clearly that's led to a boom in interest. But at the same time, if you're a young black girl, or even more stark, and I will say we're going to do a separate podcast on the issue around South Asian girls, and I've had conversations with people this week about uh, doing that in a podcast because I don't want to conflate black and South Asian girls. There's there's different things going on there, but. Like if you're from one of those communities, you might look at the Lionesses winning the Euros, and, but but you don't see yourself because there was only there was like one there were three mixed race players in the squad, only one of them played in the tournament. Like so, you could just as easily feel disenfranchised by it. And one of the things I put in the piece as well um, when I spoke to Anita, I didn't speak to her directly about this, but um, England used to have in Hope Powell they had a black female manager for 15 years and that's the environment that Rachel Yankee and Anita Asante and Alex Scott came up in mm. her successor was Mark Sampson was embroiled in a scandal where he allegedly made a series of racially insensitive comments to black and and mixed race girls and I can only speculate that must have had an impact mm. as well where you go from having a black woman to having someone who's basically accused of racism, that's got to have an impact if you're if you're a young black girl going, is this sport really for me? Sure. So there's 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 other kind of things going on there, but uh, overall, I do think the increased profile of women's football in 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 its own right should fix some of that organically. But in the piece, we look at. Um, uh, James Honeyman talks to me in detail about the specific things Arsenal are doing in specific communities to try to kind of access some of that talent that mm. perhaps we women's football hasn't been accessing. All right. Well, look, it, it, there's so much more in the piece itself that people can read. It's over on Arsblog News. You will find a link to that uh, in the show notes or you'll find it on the website as well. Can I, can yeah. I just add, before we move on, on the piece as well, I, I, I do... I do want to say I think Arsenal deserve credit for engaging on this subject. Mm-hmm. They put out the statement and, um, you know, I, I spoke to them for a while about the fact that I was going to do this piece and I asked if I could have, and 
I wondered about how best to do it because obviously we don't want to just write Arsenal's PR for them. And uh, I don't think Arsenal want that either. Sure. Um, so I, I, I kind of went for the academy angle because I wanted to go for the, well, what are we doing? What is the club doing to try to fix this? Arsenal don't usually give access to people like the women's academy manager to be interviewed. Um, but they decided to do that and to engage with this subject. And I think, um, you know, again, I don't want to do their PR for them or anything, but I do think they deserve credit for engaging, not just with us, but with this subject as a whole. And several players have spoken about it publicly. The manager, I think, was very mature. Um, he could have easily been very defensive when he was questioned about it, but he was like, nope, this is a problem. We acknowledge it's a problem. Mm -hmm. We're, we're trying to fix it. So I do think Arsenal deserve credit for engaging on yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the more you're open and transparent with things like this, you know, the, the easier it is to have conversations around it, which, you know, as we've seen with, with you know, the, the comments and some of the reactions, it does take a bit of time for people to get their head around something yeah. like, uh, like this, which is, you know... Um, a bit unfortunate, but it is what it is in the world that we live in, and it's a, it's a great piece. Like I said, it's uh, it's available for people right now. Just check your show notes. Check uh, Arsblog News, the dedicated section there to, to Arsenal women. I do want to move on. I want to talk a little bit about Gabriel Jesus, um, you know, as somebody who's got a keen eye on Brazilian football. Um, it didn't go well for him. Uh, it didn't go well for Brazil, in fairness, uh, during the week in a, a fairly um, hot-tempered game with, with Argentina. We were worried a bit about him playing. Just before I ask you about the comments that he made, you know, what's your sense of him being out for such a long time and then coming back and doing... 90 minutes if we're being glass half full here it's like well okay he's fit he's ready he's got those minutes under his belt they'll stand him in good stead as it is we're sort of waiting for him to come back to England to be assessed by the medical team and and to see whether or not he's going to be ready like I don't think he was going to play this weekend against uh, Brentford anyway given the injury situation and the travel and all the rest of it I think he was always going to be on the bench I guess we sort of have to wait to see whether or not he's going to be available, but yeah. 90 minutes felt a little unfortunate to me. Yeah. And um, don't watch any highlights because, you know, it's November. It's the end. We're coming to the end of the Brazilian domestic season where they play like three times a day. Mm. Um, <laughs> and the Maracanã pitch, uh, not nice, <laughs> yeah. to be honest. Um, and, and, you know, it's coming towards their summertime as well. Like it's and in Rio, it's like, it's been about 40 degrees uh, the last couple of weeks. So the Maracanã pitch, not in a great condition either. I Maybe this is just because I've had a closer eye on Brazil over the years. I have a bit more sympathy with them in this scenario. I'm much more angry about Gareth Southgate playing Declan Rice and Bukayo Saka and then whinging afterwards that his players didn't seem to care very much about the game. <laughs> like... How how did you not work that out before? And yeah. Particularly when you've got like semi-retired players like Henderson and Phillips on your bench. Like, come on, use your loaf, man. For Brazil, very very different. It's um, they're in a very very bad run of form. Uh, their last two double headers, they've taken one point. Um, not 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 good news for them. It's a big game at home to Argentina. To put some context around this, this is the first time Brazil have ever lost a World Cup qualifier at home. So that's how big it is. But the, the main reason I have some sympathy with them on this is basically they've got an injury crisis in forward positions. 
without which I don't think Jesus would have started. So effectively, mm. Neymar's injured, Vinicius Junior is injured, um, Richarlison is injured. And I mean, Lord knows why, but they do pick Anthony. But Anthony's kind of made himself available um, for reasons that maybe we won't go into for legal reasons, but so he's not been available for them. So effectively, they don't really have an awful lot of choice at the moment. And that's why he played the full 90 as well. The mm. reason he played the full 90 is because they got no one to bring on. Like, if you want an idea for the kind of situation they're in, I mean, I know you mentioned it on the blog, Joel, Joe Ellington, Joe Linton, um, for, for our English friends, or Joe Linton, uh, to locals <laughs> in Newcastle. I mean, he got sent off, which was very funny, not least because he really didn't deserve it. No. Um, but the fact that he's getting on the pitch for Brazil kind of tells you something, to be honest. So they're in a kind of dire situation and they've had two interim managers because they've been waiting for Carlo Ancelotti and basically they're in a lot of trouble and they've not got any forwards. They kind of had to play Gabriel Jesus. So I have a little bit of sympathy for them on that. Um, he got booked and he's now suspended for their next World Cup qualifier, Gabriel Jesus. Unfortunately, that's not till next September now because we've got a Copa America this summer, which Gabriel Jesus will probably go to. So, yeah. yeah. So he said the, the question of his wider goal scoring record for Brazil came up. I think in general, he's got something like one in three. I think it's 19 goals in 64 appearances, but only one goal in his last 27 for Brazil. So, you know, that, that obviously is going to um, come under scrutiny. We know what Brazilian football is like with forwards. They are the, kind of the be all and end all, really. Um, and when you've got one goal in 27, I mean, I think in in this case, you know, he's really pushed himself to be available to help the team out because of all the injuries and absences that you talked about. So he probably deserves some credit for that. And then the fact that after a month out with a hamstring injury, maybe he wasn't at his best, you know, I don't know quite what people are expecting, but he made some comments and, you know, they're fairly normal, I think, comments because it was criticism of, of uh, you know, his record in the World Cup in 2018. And he said, I was younger, I had a different mind. And, and what he sort of said that people have jumped on is the idea that, you know, goal scoring, it's not my strong point. And people are saying, oh, you know, what are you saying that for? Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I think anyone who's watched him for Arsenal would kind of say, yeah, I understand that. Like, yeah. I would like him to be a bit more clinical in front of goal, but I completely understand why he has that mindset when it comes to what he brings to the team. It's not that he doesn't want to score. It's not that he can't score. But I think when Arsenal have a fully fit Gabriel Jesus up top, there is a fluency to our attack. There is a, a sort of um, a sort of flair, a, a bit that we don't get from any of the other options that we have up there. And, and look, Trossard has done well in the last couple of games. Trossard has had some games up top where he hasn't done anything. I think he was taken off at halftime in one game this season when he started up top. Eddie does what Eddie does. Kai Havertz is a left back now, so let's not even talk about him as a forward. So, you know, I, I think this idea that that this comment is something to be critical of is is a bit sort of wide of the mark because I think what he's talking about is is the way he can glue a team together. Yeah, definitely. And we all understand that. But what you've got to kind of understand around the kind of the coverage and the support mm. of the Brazilian national team, first of all, a lot of this goes back to the 2018 World Cup where famously he didn't score a goal. 
And the, the thing is, if you're um, into football in in any kind of serious or committed way, if you're listening to this, that probably includes you. <laughs> you understand things like Gabriel Jesus's role traditionally for Brazil hasn't been to score the goals because it's Neymar. Neymar is the main guy. And what Gabriel Jesus's role always was, was to be the foil for Neymar, for, to be the guy, a bit like an NFL blocker, like get the defenders out of his way, get into the box, but you're not going to get the ball. Neymar's getting the ball. So that's been his role. But you know, it, it's kind of, it, I think this happens in a lot of countries around national teams. You get a bit more kind of casual interest and then you multiply apply that by Brazil, which is, you know, 210 million people. And their national team has this very, very proud history of winning five World Cups and everything like that. And people don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that their <laughs> number nine is there to make space for Neymar and make runs and take sure. like. So the 2018 World Cup, they didn't perform and he didn't score a goal. So they hate him. It's a, it really is as simple as that. If I tell you, like if I, I think I'm, I might have said this before, so bear with me, but Roberto Carlos, what, what would you think that Brazilian people think of Roberto Carlos? I mean, but, from, from a distance, you know, I, I would have thought uh, he would be held in, in good esteem, but obviously you're about to tell me something very different. So here's, here's the kicker. Go back and look at the goal Thierry Henry scores for France in the 2006 World Cup quarterfinal. Mm -hmm. Roberto Carlos is not marking Henry on the back post because he's messing with his shin pad. Hated. Everyone hates him. <laughs> it's like, it's as, it's as simple as that. It doesn't matter that he won the World Cup four years before. He People don't like him because of that. Like, the, the Brazilian national team, it's it, its a bit like Real Madrid, I'd say. It's mm. like, it's that level of intensity and hysteria. And actually, people really only watch the World Cup, um, to be honest. So a lot of the reaction to what Gabriel Jesus said, I promise you most of those people didn't watch the game. Most of those people will have seen the result and then they'll have seen the clip of, we lost 1-0, our number nine didn't score. And then he's saying that, he doesn't score like scoring goals is not his strong point that that's all most people will see and engage with and it's kind of the national team is very and, and again like i say this this happens in england as well definitely mm. I, i've just been whinging about declan rice and bukayo saka how much of the macedonia game do you think i watched so <laughs> like so i'm i'm not saying <laughs> like that i'm above um, all of that but he he has a hard time mm. back home and that's one of the things he also said in the interview, you know, um, I'm not responding to criticism and things like that because the mistake he made was after the 2018 World Cup, he took it very, very hard, that criticism. Jesus, I mean, he was a young man. I mean, he still is a young man, mm. but he was young then. He came up very young. And I think he's a sensitive guy. Um, that, that He's a meme in Brazil because he always looks like he's about to cry. Um, and quite often he does. <laughs> like... <laughs> And so, like, there's a famous image when he gets sent off in the Copper America final of him in the tunnel and, like, he pushes the VAR um, camera over mm. and he sits in the tunnel and he cries. And, like, he's quite emotionally on edge. I think it's got to him in the past. And the mistake he made after the 2018 World Cup was to respond to the criticism. And he said, and he tried to explain the nuances of his role. And again, complete waste of time, complete waste of time. Like, mm engaging with it so this time he'll be aware that once again he's become a meme and people are pointing and laughing at him but because of his experience last time that's what he meant in the interview when he said i'm going to be quiet like he was interviewed this time 
And by the way, he was the only senior player that was interviewed. There was another running joke about the guy, one of the guys the Brazil press office put up for interview came on for 13 minutes at the end of the game. And he's played like four games for Brazil. And that's who they put Mm. to the media. So Jesus was one of the few senior players who did an interview. But he that's that's what he meant when he said, I'm going to be quiet, I'm going to do my work because there, there's a lot of scar tissue there. And frankly, the only way it will ever go away is if Brazil win the next World Cup and he scores a hat-trick in the final. That's the only way it's ever going away. Mm. And I think he knows that. Well, maybe he'll have to just satisfy himself with two goals in the final as Brazil win and, and <laughs> no, just live no, with... No, no, That won't be enough. That won't be enough because that'll only equal what Ronaldo did. And, you know, can't do that. Well, it's a tough old world out there for Brazilian strikers. Hopefully he's fit and ready for us. And, uh, you know, over the course of this uh, this busy period as we go into December, you know, he can refine his fitness and form uh, and score goals for us and, you know, hopefully take some of that form into Brazil in the Copa America next year. Listen, Tim, we better leave it there. Thanks a million as always we'll catch up soon yeah my pleasure as always thank you to Tim you can find him on Twitter he is at Stillmanator at Stillmanator and as I mentioned the link to the piece that he wrote on Arsbog News is available in the show notes right now you can just go down click on that and have a good read if not you can find it in the text on the associated post for this podcast over at arsblog.com so look that is about that for this particular episode hopefully we've done enough to pass some of this interlull time before the football starts again it starts of course on Saturday evening Arsenal take on Brentford away from home we'll talk about that game we'll talk about whatever injury news updates we get from Mikel Arteta after his press conference on Friday morning we will do all of that over on Patreon tomorrow afternoon you can join us for our Premier League preview podcast it's patreon.com forward slash arseblog if you're not already a member you can sign up get instant access to everything that we do there for about a five or a month for now thanks again for listening and we will catch you on the next one until then cheers bye bye Mr. Mikel Arteta, you are before this courtroom today because you have made comments which have been deemed detrimental to the game of football. They bring our beautiful game into disrepute, disfavor, disgrace, ignominy, and taint it with the kind of rainbow thing you see on a bit of bacon when it's just about to go off. How do you plead, sir? Mr. Arteta? Mr. Arteta? Mr. Arteta? I will find you in contempt of this court.
Mr. Arteta? Mr. Arteta? Mr. Arteta? Mr. Arteta? Mr. Arteta? Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? UVX10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.